I'm Steve Scher. Recently, a team of scientists in a groundbreaking analysis of data from hundreds of sources concluded that humans are on the verge of causing unprecedented damage to the oceans and the animals living in them. A Stanford-based ocean biologist and one of the authors of the study was quoted in the New York Times. He held out a little hope. I fervently believe that our best partner in saving the ocean is the ocean itself. To convince people of the value of the wonders of the ocean, Palumbia has written a new book with novelist Anthony Palumbia, his son, The Extreme Life of the Sea, highlighting the amazing life of the sea creatures who are the fastest, the oldest, the coldest, the hottest living beings. The ocean is this most incredibly productive place. It, it is, in fact, our best partner for saving the ocean. And, you know, if we know how to do things that will help the ocean help us, and by doing them, we're not really sacrificing a huge amount, um, and it works. So I don't think there's that big trade-off that people might be afraid of. Well, they are. They are afraid of it, though, right? They are. You said about this book, a collection of guiltless wonder about amazing things going on in the oceans, things that are mostly secrets except to marine biologists. The basic point is that there are all these amazing creatures out there living their lives in amazing ways. A lot of people just think of them as seafood. These critters are out there um, living pretty amazing lives that we can actually delve into and, and show not not on a screen and uh but but in the the book itself and the the written word is something that we tried to tried to bring out well um, this book is a lot of fun as you know and people have been telling you and that's why you wrote it because there's all these extremes so let's let's do a few let's talk about the oldest first because age is an amazing discovery one of the things that we do when we look at ocean careers we bring a lot of assumptions uh along with us and one of the assumptions was was for whales that well they probably you know, they probably live about the same age as we do, 50, 60, 70 years. And then in the early 90s, a bowhead whale was caught by Inuit Indians in, the, in Alaska with, with a brass harpoon in it. It was stuck in a scar on the back of this animal, and, and no one has thrown a brass harpoon at a whale for, for over a century. So immediately, there was this irrefutable evidence that this animal had been swimming around in the Arctic uh, for over 100 years. Uh, it was vigorous, it was caught just like normal, and uh, and made people go back and re reassess, well, how long do bowhead whales live? And we discovered pretty quickly that we don't know a lot about how old uh, animals live, mostly because we have animals in zoos or they're around where we live or we have them as pets. But since that doesn't work very much uh, in the ocean, then our knowledge about real lifespans is is pretty limited. Uh, once we started looking into it, a very clever chemist named Jeffrey Bada um, developed an age meter for whales. And it's based upon the way the proteins in the eye lens change shape naturally over time. And if you dig down a little more, you discover, well, there's one part of a mammal's body like ours where you have the same molecules in that part that you were born with. For most of our bodies, all the molecules are, are, are re, renewed and, and changed around, muscles and bone even. Um, but the center of our lenses, of our eyes, have proteins. That's what makes up the lens. And those protein molecules are the same molecules that were there when we were born. That's astounding. It is. But if you think about it, think about cataracts. 
And as, as people age, they get cataracts and the lenses cloud. It's because we don't renew those proteins in, in eye lenses. And so whales, these hump, bowhead whales, have a version of cataracts um, as the proteins change shape. And so this very clever chemist figured out a way to, to make a clock or estimate a clock from that. And then he could say, well, how long do bowhead whales really live? And they live 100 years, 110 years, 120 years, especially for males. They're the oldest living mammals that we know. You also have uh, been looking at the research in terms of uh, uh, radioactive carbon dating and what that tells us about creatures. We'll talk a little bit about that because that was amazing. The otolith, the bone in the ear, helps us date and age creatures. Right. And so we, we do this for a lot of critters from trees to fish. There's structures that grow over time and we slice through them and count the rings and count the rings in trees. You can count the rings in a little bone in a fish's ear called an otolith or uh, the rings in a, uh, a great white shark's vertebra as, as it grows. The real trick is what's, what's the scale? How many rings are laid down a year? And for trees, we kind of know what the answer is. But we didn't really know the answer for a lot of fish, and uh, in particular for uh, beluga whales, for example. How do you tell? You need some kind of date that tells you, all right, this ring was laid down at that date. And some folks just went back to the record of you know, the last couple of decades on the planet and noticed that there's this huge spike of a radioactive isotope called C14. And the big spike in C14 in the world came in the, the mid to late 1960s. Why? Well, because it turns out we dropped a couple of dozen atom bombs on a coral reef in the Pacific Ocean in the 1950s and the 1960s. Most folks under 30 don't really realize that we used to drop hydrogen bombs on coral reefs. Uh, that C14 went all over the world. And it's in you, by the way, and it's yeah. in me. Our, our amount of C14 is 20 to 30% higher than it would have been, um, except for those. And there's this spike. And if you, if you know to look for it, you can look in the otolith, that is this ear bone of a fish, to see where that spike is. And by looking in the otolith and looking for the spike, you can say, okay, now I can date exactly where these rings when these rings were laid down so by doing that they have found that in fact some fish live not the 10 or 20 or 30 years we expect but a fish that's two or three feet long a nice fish but not that big can be 80 years old or a hundred years old that was the rockfish that uh, has also been an example of that and that was a question then of how sustainable was the fisheries we were engaged in that fish right and so all of a sudden it comes is the very different setting instead of harvesting fish that replenish themselves every 10 or 20 years in a in a quick generation you're now essentially almost like logging old growth forest when you're when you're eating a fish that's 80 or 90 or 100 years old then the, the replenishment rate is so much lower than we thought uh, and at the time those fish 
They're, they're rockfish, by the way. Um, they're in Puget Sound. They're on the coast of Washington State. Uh, they're also all up and down the coast of California. And these rockfish were heavily overfished and declared endangered by the National Marine Fisheries Service. We just got that time scale wrong. When we stopped, looked at it, and realized, well, these fish can still be fished, but they have to be fished in a different way because they're they're living a lot more slowly. Well, then that and a couple of other things have allowed those populations to come back into line with with sustainable fishing practices. What is the oldest creature in the ocean? How long does it live? No, oh, we we. We know that there are a couple of critters in the ocean that live astonishingly long times. And so the oldest animal that we know of on the planet, it lives in the ocean, lives about a hundred, or, sorry, about a thousand feet down on the slopes of the big island of Hawaii. And it's a soft coral, a black coral. Um, and they grow very, very slowly. It's dark. It's cold. There's not much food. They grow about a half of a hair's width a year on these slopes. And they get six, seven, eight feet tall. And when they get that big, uh, the oldest known animal that's clocked in by a colleague of mine named Rob Dunbar uh, is 4,270 years old. That's astonishing. It's astonishing that life can sustain itself that long. It's amazing. I mean, clearly amazing. The, the, there's pyramids that are younger than that uh, in, in the earth. And, you know, these are animals that have evolved to live in a very different place than we do. They have a very different relationship with time. Uh, once they're, you know, a foot or two high, the environment is very, very constant they just live. They just grow. There's nothing that's going to come along and kill them or eat them. Uh, every year they get a tiny bit bigger. Every year they make a few more offspring, and and that's how they live their lives in a in a in a clock, with a clock that's totally different than ours. I want to ask you about more of the extremes. Uh, St- Steve Palumbi, along with Tony Palumbi, his son, have written the Extreme Life of the Sea. It's a it's a great romp, a, a book that's a Give, won some awards this year mm-hmm. as, as one of the great science books, reaching out to people. But I want to ask you about the, the some of the quotes in the New York Times This just that came out this last week because uh, you and your colleagues uh, put out this meta research project, looked at, looked at data from around the world to take a look at the, at the oceans. And, uh, of course, the headline in the Times was uh, looming mass extinctions of the oceans. Uh, that's a very frightening headline. How accurate is it? So the paper that we talked about and and that Carl Zimmer covered in the Times um, says that, hey, you know, right now there's this kind of conundrum because uh, there's been very few extinctions in the sea, and especially compared to land. But if we look in the way we use land, uh, the Industrial Revolution on land accelerated extinctions because we have used the habitats of the land ever, ever, ever so much more. So the, the paper basically looks at how we're using the ocean and notices that, in fact, industrial use of the ocean is going up by leaps and bounds. And as we do that, then we're having more and more effect on the habitats of the sea. So the prediction about increased mass extinction in the sea essentially says, well, 
when we industrialized land, this is what happened. So as we industrialized the sea, then we should expect the same sorts of things to happen. Well, how does the industrialization of the sea, so uh, seabed mining, large-scale trawling on the ocean floors, work in with the, the larger processes that are undermining life in the sea, acidification, pollution, overfishing? They're actually just sort of tied totally together because those things, acidification, um, overfishing, and pollution, are problems in the global ocean because they're industrialized. When, when we used to fish with ships that were pushed along by canvas sails and we had hemp and ropes as, as lines, um, you know, we could fish a lot but we couldn't fish everywhere, and the oceans were, were a vast array of, of fished populations. Whereas right now we have industrial-sized factory fishing fleets that can go everywhere in the ocean and take whatever they want in huge, huge amounts. Um, seabed mining is something that never was really possible until a couple of decades ago. But now the technology is is able to build machines that can crawl along the seabed and, and um, gather up minerals there. So it's that industrialization that actually pushes the bounds of what we can use in the ocean to the point where almost everything in the ocean is now within our grasp. It's never been that way ever before. So in a sense, this was a warning. This was a way of saying to the industrializers, let's look at what happened on the land and not make the same mistakes. It's not only a warning, it is essentially saying, okay, uh, these mistakes are looming. That's the great word. Um, but, you know, we do know three or four things that we can do just to, to, to stave that off. We don't have to go down that path. We know what to do to use the ocean in an industrial level and not cause extinctions at the same time. Some of those lessons came from land, but a lot of those lessons came from how do we use the you – I'm sorry. A lot of these lessons have come from how we have used the ocean over the last couple of decades and learned to use it more effectively. For example? For example, a very simple thing called marine protected areas. Uh, we have about 10% of the land area now that's protected, um, but we only have a, about 2% of the ocean that is at all protected. But we find when you protect parts of the ocean, uh, say from overfishing or say from industrial development, uh, the, the power of ocean life reasserts itself and productivity comes back. Um, fish grow bigger, there's more of them, and uh, these areas can, can blossom again. Do they need to be pr protected areas not just along shorelines but also out in the middle of the oceans? So the easiest ones are in your shorelines because ten, the, the species that are protected there tend to stay put. Um, we also have been talking, people have been talking about uh, areas that are far off from shore. Um, there they have to be big enough to en encompass the movement of species that are that are offshore and sort of open ocean species. And that's a little bit trickier. It's also tend they also tend to cross national boundaries, making it a little bit trickier. But the same principles uh, basically apply. Uh, it comes as no surprise that if you stop killing fish, they live longer and they they grow bigger. And they're actually more productive, and they produce the next generation more easily when you protect them. Is that critical, though, to get out in the middle of the ocean where these uh, trawlers might be 
scraping the bottoms of the sea, or is it uh, most crit- or, or do you have support for that among those sorts of uh, fishing nations? The the interesting thing about that is that way out there beyond national boundaries, say more than 200 miles offshore, uh, is kind of an international gray zone. There's something called the international law of the sea, which the United States has not ratified, um, that uh, talks about how we use the, the high seas and the open ocean. And in those particular cases, um, there is a almost still a scramble for those resources, the fish, the minerals, everything, everything about it. Uh, it makes up a good chunk of the oceans, and it also makes sense to take the lessons that we're, we're seeing now and apply it, because that part of the ocean is the least industrialized right now, and it's possible that we could get ahead of the exploitation curve and produce uh, some just simple guidelines that say, let a chunk of that stay in good shape and highly productive so that we can use the rest. One of the things you talk about is the need for these uh, refugees refuges to exist because of climate refugees in the ocean, creatures seeking warmer or cooler water. Where are we seeing the, the, uh, the migration of, of uh, species already? Oh, Steve, we're seeing migration all over the ocean. A lot of fish species are shifting um, more and more and more uh, to the north. Um, see that on the east coast, see that on the west coast. And as they do, they take with them uh, the entire fishing fleets that are now roving around the world trying to catch them wherever they are. Um, we're seeing the establishment of new fisheries grounds in northern Alaska, north of the Bering Strait, for example, that never were there before. Uh, we're seeing even animals that aren't fished any longer, like gray whales, instead of feeding around the Bering Strait, they are feeding far to the north of the Bering Strait, along the northern edge of, of Alaska and the northern edge of, of Siberia. Uh, mostly because their food is now shifted more to the north because of warmer waters to the south. And, and they are going so far out of their normal migration routes, their normal feeding routes, that they're getting lost. And a couple of years ago, there was an astonishing report, astonishing set of photos of a gray whale off the coast of Israel. That's very rare. It's <laughs> like very never rare. happens. Never been seen before. But the only thing people can imagine is poor animals swam up northern Alaska, trundled along northern Canada for a while, and then when it became, you know, fall and it was time to head south, that's what it did. It headed south, it found a bay, and it turned left into that bay, which is what they usually do. They go south and turn left into the into Magdalena Bay in Baja. But the bay was the Mediterranean Sea and the ocean was the Atlantic. So this poor whale is just following its normal rules but had gotten into the wrong ocean. What's filling up the space, if anything, as the creatures that were in the further south are moving north? What's coming into those areas? That's an excellent question. So it turns out there are species that are more tropical and subtropical that are moving into the temperate zone. And then the temperate zone species are moving a little bit um, farther north. Uh, 
we don't know yet whether the tropical species are expanding or whether or not the center of their old range, the, the, the equatorial regions, are becoming less and less hospitable for, for, for those fish. Um, but <clears throat> there's this steady movement of tropical species to the north, subtropical species a little bit further to the north, and then the temperate species even, even further. Where do we get most of our fisheries, by the way? It's not tropical fisheries. It's temperate and northern fisheries. Those are the productive ones, the cod, the pollock, and um, they're moving much further to the north. Is anything similar happening in the south uh, as creatures move towards the Antarctic? Uh, yes. Same, same sort of thing. Same happening sort of thing. The south. The, the trouble there is that there's not as much land in the south. There's not as much coastal fishing. And there's this huge, big, incredibly rough southern Pacific Ocean down there. Um, and that, that makes those transitions a, a little harder. So those fish that are coming down from temperate regions and moving towards the South Pole, they, they'll hit what's, what's called the Roaring Forties. That is an incredible maelstrom of currents and, and wind and rough seas that are there surrounding the Antarctic. Stephen Plumby and his son Tony Plumby, author of The Extreme Life of the Sea. You study corals. Uh, and then and the survival of corals. So you've found some corals that seem to s survive in warmer water. What is that telling you about the future of coral life in the sea? It tells us that it's possible that corals can survive a little little warmer water than we ever thought they could. Um, but the way this turned, the way this came about was. Um, visiting a number of different places around the Pacific and um, collecting corals to look at their populations, uh, we stumbled across an island uh, in American Samoa uh, called Ofu. And we actually have a U.S. national park there. It's the only U.S. national park south of the equator. And uh, the coral reef biologist there, uh, a wonderful fellow named Peter Craig, had written a paper that said, you know, this this lagoon we have on this island, Ofu, it's very funny. It heats up to 90 degrees in the summer, 92, 95 degrees warm in the summer. And that's way too warm for corals. And so naturally, they're all dead, but they're not. The lagoons are full of growing, living, very diverse corals. So something is unusual about these corals growing in that place. Do you know what it is yet? We actually know a lot about it. We've spent the last six or seven years there. Uh, I'm a geneticist. We have thrown all the power of modern uh, DNA sequencing technology and genomics at this question. And, and we now know that it's really based upon, for the species we studied, two things. Um, they can do two things. Each coral can acclimate, that is, it can change its physiology over time and become a little more heat resistant. If you put it in warmer water, it gets a little bit more heat resistant. We can do that by, by snapping off bits of corals and moving them around from cooler to warmer parts of the reef. And when we do that, we see that plop them down, let them grow for a year. They're much more heat resistant when they're growing in warmer water than exactly the same coral when it's growing in cooler cooler water. So this process called acclimation is where you, you can adjust physiology to um, take, take advantage of the current environment. The second thing is that corals have a set of genes that allow them to, to be more heat resistant. And 
um, if if you're a coral that has the right genes, um, then you're more heat resistant than if you've inherited genes that are that work better in cooler water. So the species we look at, there's about a hundred genes that do this. We found, and if you've got say warm water versions of 40 or 50 of those genes, you do a lot better than if you say have 10 warm water versions. So these two things, acclimation and adaptation are what's going on. Uh, we back up and we realize that that's what all species do almost all the time. Uh, they adapt as the climate changes or the environment changes and their physiologies are a little bit adjustable. Um, so that's how these corals are doing it come back to acclimation, adaptation, and adjustment in terms of climate change, but just a few more of the extreme creatures that you look at because they're, they're fun and they're fascinating. They are fun, no so, question. What about this jellyfish that uh, can uh, age in reverse? It's in our, in our oldest chapter, and it's called the immortal jellyfish. And for, uh, for most animals, um, you sort of go from young to middle to older age, and you're kind of on this linear progression. But this jellyfish is the one that we we know of, where the adult, if the if, if the environment decays and all of a sudden becomes um, troublesome, the adult can essentially go back, turn the clock back, and and become a larva again, and swim off, then start all over is it changing size is it shedding some of its cells how does it become a larva no it it does shed cells and it does change size and shrink back down they're not that big to begin with mind you they're kind of very small jellyfish um so it's a question of dropping a lot of the things that larvas larvae don't have like tentacles and stuff uh taking the cells that are left forming them into a ball and then swimming off into the sunset uh, mind you, these larvae are not that complicated, um, but nothing else that we know of does this, and it's uh, it's a remarkable way of resetting your whole life clock. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, you also talk about the clownfish, the anglerfish that uh, changes its sex. You uh, you talk about the stoplight loose jaw, which can hunt in the dark. It's got like a night vision goggles but i wanted to exactly. ask you i wanted to ask you about we we see the bottoms of the ocean as fairly barren so what is whale fall and what happens whale fall is like when the taco truck shows up in your parking lot i mean it's this incredible boon of food that you just had you know never really anticipated um so the 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 bottom of the ocean is dark. It's deep. And there's not much food there. Most of the food, because there's no light and no, no photosynthesis, most of the food comes raining down as small little bits of particles that oceanographers have called marine snow. And the deeper you get, the less snow there is. Uh, and uh, it's pretty much food-free, the bottom of the sea, except for this thin rain of, of snow. And every once in a while comes flumping down this enormous carcass of a multi-ton huge whale. And, and you can just imagine it just going and just hitting the bottom and staying there. It is just the most incredible big bonanza of food that the deep sea ever gets. Who comes? Uh, 
everybody comes. So it turns out if you if you if you throw out a whale carcass and put a camera on it, which people have done, then within a few days and a week or so, there's a, a roving band of deep sea fish, hagfish and sharks and some other things that come snarfling in and start start pecking at it. And then there's a period of a couple of weeks and months where a whole set of, of marine species colonize the the whale and land on it and start to grow. Um, lots of worms, lots of even um, small clams that settle down there. They dig in and they consume the meat. Uh, other fish come in to eat them and also eat some of the whales. So there's a there's quite a little ecosystem that builds up just over a period of a couple of months as the, the meat is chewed away. Then you get the bones left. And then a whole other set of amazing critters comes and, and attacks the bones. You, you end up with just a sort of thin little whale dust on the bottom of the, of the sea. Even the bones are eaten by, by these, these critters. Boy, it really does drive home that notion of uh, the cycle of life when you talk about it. It does, and you know, we 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 puzzled about that a little bit, and we realized though that uh, before we ate the whales, there were a lot of them, and and they had a life cycle, and so the oceans were actually the home of the great whales, and these whales were probably raining down at a pretty steady rate uh, for millions and millions of years, and a whole set of organisms have evolved to take advantage of that. That's remarkable. It's remarkable to think of the oceans that way. Um, it is deep, dark, steady, and what we found in the book is that when you dig into any corner of the ocean, there is usually something there ahead of you, uh, learning how and that's learned how to use it, eat there, live there, reproduce there. Um, you better not make any assumptions about how they do it because those assumptions are often wrong, um, but those animals are there. Let me ask you about the fastest. So what's the fastest uh, fish in the sea? Fastest fish in the sea is recorded as a, as a sailfish. And they have been recorded at a, reliably 60 miles an hour. There are reports of 80 miles an hour, but nobody really can countenance that. But 40 to 60 miles an hour. How do they get to be moving that fast? What's happening in their bodies? Well, there's two things. One is, is of course, they're just muscle. And if you look at a sailfish, a, a marlin, uh, a swordfish, they are streamlined piles of incredible muscle. Um, so, so that's how they physically move that fast. Um, we don't have any video of it because no one's. You just can't see something move that fast in the ocean. But we do know from fluid mechanics that the, the problem is if water has a lot of drag to it. So if you're trying to move through the water uh, and the faster you get, the more the drag, but the drag goes up at the square of the velocity. So if you have a fish moving at four miles an hour and versus 40 miles an hour, then the fish at 40 miles an hour has a hundred times more drag. So that sets the limits to how fast things can move in the ocean. Lots of muscle, lots of streamlining. But the coolest thing is actually that these fast fish not only are swimming at those speeds, but they're feeding at those speeds. 
And that was another problem because imagine swimming through a Starbucks at 40 miles an hour and picking up a cup of coffee and going but not slowing down. That's what they do. They've had to actually figure out a way to see fast enough and think fast enough in order to respond to their, to their food. How do they do that? They do it in a really simple way because their biggest problem with, with thinking and processing information is, is that they're cold. The water's cold. They're cold-blooded animals. So they actually have installed heaters in the back of their eyes and on their optic lobes are heaters that heat their brains and their eyes to be strong enough or warm enough so that they can, they can process information fast enough. Are they processing information like mammals, or are they actually processing information more quickly than what we can do with our brains? I don't know about that, but uh, what people have done is to estimate if they didn't do that, uh, how would they be able to see? And so, they, for example, if you look at the, the way the, the information processing in the retina works for them, if they didn't have these heaters, then they're essentially the retinas would not be able to essentially see anything that flashed by as fast as it's going to at 40 miles an hour. That's remarkable. And they, and then yeah. they bat they bat the uh, fish in order to grab them with their with those with their noses. It's not that they're spearing them; they're actually batting them. That's right. The, that sharp beak doesn't spear anything. They're not spearfish. They're they are using them just to swim by, smack at them, stun them, and that's what they have to do. They they smack at them, stun them, turn a little bit, gulp them down, and keep going, and. At 40 miles an hour, they have about a 30th of a second to bat a fish, turn, gulp it, and go. That's, a, that's amazing. Uh, the extreme life of the sea. I heard an interview you did, and, and a woman named Rose George was part of that interview. And you were talk, she was talking about container ships and container shipping. And, and one thing that she mentioned was the change in the acoustic environment of the ocean. And you had this wonderful image about what how whales operated before all these ships and started generating sound in the ocean. And there was this, they, they could map their environment acoustically. How did they do that? So this is just something that we've learned over the last couple of decades as people have figured out exactly what whales use their, their hearing and their, their sound for. Um, they, uh, are able to keep track of one another in migrations and know where each other are over over miles, even tens of miles. Um, they can hear whale song uh, tens or hundreds of miles away. So the notion was that as they were moving up and down on their migration routes, they didn't have to be right next to one another to see one another. They probably couldn't see one another, but they always knew where one another was, at least that's the idea, by just being able to hear them. Um, they're very social animals. They form family groups. They're, they're very tight migration corridors that uh, many whales follow. But now the whole ocean has got enormous background noise of engines and propellers. And so it, it's like uh, you know trying to have a conversation um, at a restaurant where the basic noise level goes up and up and up and up pretty soon you just can't hear anybody and your whole conversation falls apart that's what whales do um as the as the level of noise in the ocean has gone up their ability to hear one another over long distances has collapsed and and people now think that has a, that affects their social structure and migration ability 
And this, of course, is a, the whole, this affects large amounts of the ocean in the same way that acidification is affecting large amounts of the ocean. When you uh, think about what has to be done to um, right the course of the ship of the ocean to get it uh, away from the business-as-usual model towards which we're heading, it, it almost seems uh, impossible because there's just so much human uh, impact going on on a global scale. But you don't think so? It is possible? Yeah, I, I don't think it's impossible. I think that there are some, some simple rules that, that we can follow. And, and, and again, it comes from the fact that the ocean is, is our best partner and the ocean is very hugely productive. You know, if, it, if we needed to leave 90% of the ocean completely alone in order to keep it safe and productive, then we'd have a huge problem. But nobody thinks that that's necessary because it's so productive. Uh, if we left 50% of it alone, it would be, it would be thriving. Uh, some people are basically thinking that if we just left 20 to 30% of it alone uh, and we reduced our impact on that 20 to 30%, we could use the other 70 or 80% of it. Um, and the oceans would still have a very good chance of, of moving, moving forward. So um, it's the fact that we can still use most of it and have it too that gives me uh, the the idea that we could do this even with something like ocean acidification which is affecting you know the entire ocean yeah so you bring up a problem where we cannot set aside 20 or 30 percent of the ocean to to keep away from that and in in the book we have a chapter at the very end called future extremes where we have tried to, to pull together some of the threats in the ocean um one of the things I should say is that we, we wrote the book with an idea that we were not going to end every story with, a, with, a, with berating the reader for the ocean being in trouble. That is not conducive to the, the way we wanted people to think about the ocean, which was this idea of guiltless wonder about how amazing these creatures are. But there are problems and we can't ignore them. So the last couple of chapters are, are about that. Um, and acidification is really uh, one that is, I'd say, unique to uh, to the recent history of, of the globe. This is a pollution problem. It's not local. It's completely global. And it's building up bit by bit by bit. It's not really affecting too many things right now, global ocean acidification. Um, there are a few things like oysters on the west coast of uh, the U.S., up, up where you guys are, along the Washington and Oregon coast. The ocean acidification has been a huge problem for oysters. It's been a huge problem for scallops. Those are local coastal problems. Um, but as the global problem gets bigger and bigger, it still hasn't become a crisis. But... The real problem is that once it does become a crisis, it's such a big problem, it cannot be undone. So this is a problem you have to anticipate, and you have to work towards solving it before it really manifests itself. And it's not, that's not a way we operate very well. Well, you had an interesting quote in the New York Times. If by the end of the century we're not off the business-as-usual curve as we are now, I honestly feel there's not much hope for normal ecosystems in the ocean. But in the meantime, we do have a chance to do what we can. We have a couple of decades more than we thought we had. 
So let's please not waste it. Why do we have a couple of decades more than we thought we had? That's, I think, because of the adaptation and acclimation and the resilience of marine um, systems um, to that. Uh, plus, we know that if we, if we, for example, solve the, uh, the emissions problem that we have right now, um, well, it'll still take about 50 years after we completely solve the emission problems for the CO2 in the atmosphere now to, to be used up and reconverted and things to start to get better. So that gives us a few decades to learn how to solve the uh, emissions problem. We solve the emissions problem by 2050. Things get better by 2100. The oceans are are probably in pretty good shape. So that's the couple of decades between now and 2050. It doesn't sound like very long, but if, if we started making 3% more renewable power every year, in 30 or 35 years, we would be we would have shifted away from fossil fuels. So that 3% a year is something that I think is possible. It's not easy, but it's possible, and it doesn't require that economies collapse as a, as a result of it. So those are the sort of things that, that keeps me thinking, these things are possible. It's not, frankly, very likely unless we're really going to do it. But as we were writing the Future Extremes chapter, uh, there were many, <laughs> there's many weeks when we were writing that chapter where I was convinced there was no way out that we had written ourselves into a corner with climate change and there was no way out for us or the oceans. Uh, this is a way out. I still think it's there. It's not simple. But on the other hand, um, it's still there and that's what we can push for. Professor Stephen Palumbi and Tony Palumbi have written The Extreme Life of the Sea, uh, a wonderful romp through the oceans. Guiltless wonder gets you to think about those creatures. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Very, very, very nice to talk with you. And you. Marine biologist Stephen Palumbi, along with his son Anthony Palumbi, he has written The Extreme Life of the Sea. Both Palumbis will be diving into the mysteries of the deep sea Monday at 7.30, January 26th at Town Hall. You can find out more about their appearance in Seattle at townhallseattle.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Steve Scher. 